As you're seated, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Psalm 119. This past Wednesday was October 31st, Halloween, yes, but also for many of us, we call it Reformation Day. It was 501 years ago on October 31st that Martin Luther made public his now famous, the 95 Theses. Now, it is possible to exaggerate the historical importance of these 95 theses. There were many factors that went into the, well, to the birth and to the evolution of the Protestant Reformation. And the 95 theses really played a relatively small role. But Protestants have historically marked that date, October 31st, 1517, as something of a spark that contributed to the blaze that became the Protestant Reformation. I wonder what issues come to mind for you when you hear the Protestant Reformation, if you're familiar with that at all. I wonder, in your mind, what was integral to the Reformation? Some may think of the 95 Theses first and foremost. Some may picture Martin Luther with a hammer in his hand, uh, as so many paintings depict. For some, the Reformation was merely a critique of the Roman Catholic Church. For others, more specifically, they might think of that criticism of that medieval Roman Catholic practice of indulgences, Selling, selling um, years off of purgatory as people gave payment to the church. And of course, many will think of the Protestant Reformation as a movement of God which had at its center the recovery of the biblical gospel. And all of these issues were indeed integral to the Protestant Reformation. But I would argue that what is most foundational, what is most at its center, started with anyway, and it, and it centered on a recovery and a revival of the Bible. The Bible. How did Martin Luther come to see that justification or being made right with God was through faith alone and not at all by works? Well, he got that from the Greek of Romans 1. Ironically, Greek recently translated by a Roman Catholic scholar named Erasmus. How did Luther come to realize that when the Lord Jesus commanded us to repent, he didn't mean do penance, as the Latin Vulgate said, but he meant to repent? Well, he got that from the Bible. The Reformation was indeed a a recovery of the gospel for which we are eternally grateful. But that gospel was one to be understood according to the Bible alone. And of course, the Reformation didn't stop with the recovery of the gospel. With the Bible in the driver's seat, not just for doctrine, but also for practice, the church's worship also needed to be reformed. So, away with 
genuflecting and bowing in priests re-sacrificing Christ in the communion, those were replaced with the patient and simple preaching of God's word and the singing of biblical truth. There was even an obvious visual example of the Bible moving to the center of things. Whereas in the medieval church, the lectern where the Bible was read was off to the side and the communion table was was center. In the Reformation tradition, the pulpit went to the middle because it is central to what we're doing. And it still is centered here today. From the Bible, the reformers began to see that all of life really needed reformation. They began to see that worship wasn't just at church on Sunday, but in everything all through the week. They began to see that the Bible was not just a manual for priests, but a book for the people. So following in the footsteps of earlier Bible translators like Wycliffe and Tyndale in England, Luther in Germany began translating the Bible from the original languages into common German. And with the timely, providential invention of the printing press in the previous century, the Bible was printed and disseminated widely, and it had rippling effects. Just listen to what one critic of Martin Luther said about his translation. Quote, Luther's New Testament was so much multiplied and spread by printers that even tailors and shoemakers, yea, even women and ignorant persons who had accepted this new gospel, they studied it as the fountain of all truth. Some committed it to memory and carried it about in their bosom. In a few months, such people deemed themselves so learned that they were not ashamed to dispute about faith and the gospel, not only with Catholic laymen, but even with priests and monks and doctors of divinity. Amen. What's more, the Bible was seen as the source of comfort for suffering saints whether from the preaching of the word or the private reading of the word. The Bible was seen by Luther and the other reformers as the Christian's source book, not only for doctrine, not only for direction, but also for comfort in difficulty. And I could give quote after marvelous quote on that point, but I won't for time's sake. All that leads us Back to our study in Psalm 119, a psalm which at great length celebrates the Bible by way of one man's example to us of of believing the Bible and using the Bible and praying about the Bible amidst his trouble. So we've been calling this series Living by the Word. Because that's what we see in Psalm 119, a man who is living by the word and expects the word to give life. That's what we need. It's what God has designed for his people and for his church. That's what the Reformation helped 
un- uncover the Bible being in the driver's seat, the Bible used for all of life, the Bible as the source of life and comfort. So as we start to come toward the end, we'll have one more week next week. Let's look at our couple of sections for this week. Psalm 119, verses 145 to 160. He writes, With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I will call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I might meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose, but they are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Well, there are four themes that are unique to this passage, or at least have a unique emphasis in these two stanzas. Four themes. The first we could call cries in the night. Cries in the night. Cries, cries for help, that is, dominate the first half or so of the first stanza. Notice, verse 145, with my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I call to you, save me. Verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. This is the language of someone who is literally screaming for help in a life-and-death situation. Picture a woman being mugged in a dark parking lot. What would she do but scream? Picture a man hanging from a cliff and losing his grip. Picture a young girl being drawn out to sea by the current, and she screams, Help! Somebody help. But the cries for help in Psalm 119 are not just for anybody, not just somebody. They're directed to God. And notice specifically the Lord, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. Remember that Lord in all caps in most of our English Bibles signals for us God's Personal name, Yahweh, I am, the name that God discloses to us about himself. 
He calls on that God, his God, the only God. He cries to God because he's in great turmoil. And so he knows where to turn. He knows where to turn even if he hasn't yet received an answer. He hasn't yet received help. And that's the very nature of hope, by the way. Notice verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. So take careful note here that crying for help is not the abandonment of hope. Hope is the accelerant in times of trouble. Hope in the Bible is not like we might say, I hope to come to your place for Thanksgiving. I don't know, I hope so, but, but trust, it's confidence. Hope in the Bible is confidence in something that is not yet seen or achieved or realized. In that sense, it's like faith. Hebrews 11 gives us a definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Faith and hope don't necessarily dry up the tears then. Hope may for a time simply be the basis for crying out to God in our tears. But this man knows where to go even if he hasn't gotten help yet. And so one of the things this section of Psalm 119 models for us is persistence in prayer. Verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help, I hope in your words. 148, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I might meditate on your promise. So he's up in the night before the sunrise. He can't sleep. And he's up late at night before the watches of the night. In other words, he's up just before the changing of the guards at 2 a.m. He's up early. He's up late. He's crying out to God before the morning. He's, he's meditating on God's word long after normal bedtime. This is a man who can't sleep. And his sleeplessness is not because he's had his second cup of coffee later in the day than usual. This is a man who can't sleep, but not because he's had a little too much screen time right before bed, and it's, you know, it's stirred him up a little bit. It's not because Larry, his manager, is really driving him crazy these days. This is serious stuff. He's a man racked with grief, and that's why he can't sleep. So be encouraged that this, this is in the Bible. Crying in the middle of the night is what God's people have done for millennia. D.A. Carson says, There is no attempt in Scripture to whitewash the anguish of God's people when they undergo suffering. They argue with God, they complain to God, they weep before God. 
Theirs is not a faith that leads to a dry-eyed stoicism, but to a faith so robust, so robust it wrestles with God. That's what this man's doing. In a sense, he's wrestling with God. He's awake from his grief and heaviness, and he goes to God. Think of what he doesn't do that we might do, that I sometimes do. Awake from grief and heaviness, might we not sometimes turn on the TV, flip through our phones, get caught up on Instagram or Facebook? This man is not looking to distract himself from his grief, but he brings his grief to God and cries out with all his heart. He pleads to God like someone hanging from a cliff and he hopes in God and meditates on his word. Remember back in verse 82 of this great psalm, my eyes long for or search for your promise in your word. I ask, when will you comfort me? He knows there is comfort to be had in God's word, and he hasn't found it yet, but he won't give up. His eyes are weary from searching, looking for comfort. He hopes in God, and that's why he continues to cry out for help. Again, there's persistence here. It should remind us of the persistent widow crying out for justice in that parable in Luke 18. She kept coming to the the judge pleading with him for justice. Day and night she came and pleaded before him. And eventually, he took up her cause. And if an unjust judge will eventually hear the persistent pleas of a widow, then how much more our Heavenly Father, who is perfectly just and intimately concerned. So Christian, plead with God. Don't pray once and think he's heard it and be all done. Go to him again and again with your trouble. Plead with him according to his character as this man did. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, according to your chesed, your covenant love. Again, Exodus 34 is the hallmark passage telling us what steadfast love, what chesed is all about. There it says, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This man pleads with God, Hear me because... You're the God of steadfast love. You're the God of covenant keeping. You're the God who doesn't waver on promises. Hear me, not on the basis of my own worth, not on the basis of my own actions, not even on the basis of my sincerity, or even on the basis of my pain. Though it's not always wrong to pray like that as he does in verse 153. Look on my affliction and deliver me. 
Have pity on me, in other words. Yes, there's a time to pray that. Here, in verse 149, he prays that God would hear his prayer according to his covenant faithfulness. And then he prays for life according to your justice. According to justice? Now, we Christians know better than to pray like that, right? We know. You don't pray for justice. If you're a sinner and you pray for justice, you're going to get it, and it won't go well for you. You pray for mercy, right? Well, yes and no. There is something about relative righteousness and relative justice down here in the city of man. We'll see in our, under our next heading that this man's trouble has to do with evil persecutors. And so there is a thing called unjust suffering. That's what the widow in Luke 18 was talking to the judge about. And there will be a reckoning of all injustices at the end of time. But sometimes God is kind to give us a foretaste of that final justice in this life. We can know for sure that righteous suffering at the hands of sinners will one day be vindicated. But it isn't wrong to ask God for that even now. So he's praying for justice. Not in the eternal sense, not in the heavenly tribunal sense, in the relative sense. And yet, we can also say that when the psalmist said, according to your justice, give me life, he, he actually spoke far better than he could have known. Because in the cross of Jesus, there God proves himself to be both just and the justifier of sinners. He, he, he makes us right. Not because we are right, but because Jesus was right for us. On account of substitution, both his righteousness and his death on our behalf, on account of that, God can be both just and a forgiving God or a merciful God. We can pray. Give me life according to your justice. Secondly, this second theme we could call near trouble and a nearer God. Near trouble and a nearer God. Notice what is near and what is far in verses 150 and 151. Notice first that his persecutors are near. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. And why do they attack him? The rest of the verse. They are far from your law. But they are near to this man, the psalmist. So feel that threat. Those who desire to take his life are getting closer. Like lions on the hunt. Their eyes are locked on. They are inching their way towards him, and they are about to pounce. He's not exaggerating. His persecutors are not, you know, metaphors for 
bad headaches or aggravations or challenges of life. Not to minimize those, but this is extreme trouble. Life and death literally hang in the balance. He said earlier in this psalm, they've dug pits for me. They have almost made an end of me. They lie and wait to destroy me. I hold my life in my hand continually. Like David who was on the run being hunted by Saul's army. Like Jeremiah when all of Judah wanted to slaughter him. And like Jesus that night when he prayed in the garden just hours before he'd be betrayed and arrested and arraigned and eventually killed. But even though their trouble in the cases of this psalmist and David and Jeremiah and Jesus was the kind of trouble that led to death, it doesn't mean that this doesn't have significance for suffering that's less than death. No, this psalmist here gives just great value and encouragement to sufferers of any variety and any degree. He tells God that his trouble's near. He doesn't whitewash it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't try to pretend like it's not trouble. He tells God. And then he confesses this, verse 151. Remember, the enemy draws near to kill me but you are near O lord and all your commandments are true they draw near but you are near and who is stronger the enemies look fierce but god is god he is the capital l capital o capital r capital d so whose nearness really matters this is like Psalm 23. In the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your hand guides me. You, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is like Paul in 2 Timothy 4 in his last imprisonment before his execution and he said to Timothy, at my defense, no one stood with me. They all deserted me. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Now the Lord's presence isn't always visible, is it? It's usually not visible. And here's where the Christian must consciously walk by faith, not by sight. Because the enemies, whether persecutors or cancer or, or loss of loved ones, these things are tangible. They're physical. You can observe them with your eyes. You can feel it literally in your bones. And it takes no faith. It takes no no mental or spiritual effort to recognize the presence of enemies or cancer or death. And God's presence is almost always unseen. 
his nearness may, in a sense, at times be felt or experienced by a Christian. But even that, not always. Often God's presence will simply need to be believed and trusted apart from our feelings and our experience. So we'll need to keep reminding ourselves of Jesus' promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We'll have to keep confessing to God that the enemy's close, yes, but he's closer. He's nearer to the brokenhearted. We should ask ourselves, especially in times of trial, what is really close up in my life right now? What, what's staring me in, in the face? What is undeniable? Trouble? Yeah, it's okay to acknowledge that the trouble is near. It's breathing down your neck. I get it. But believe that God is nearer still. A third emphasis. Prayers for life. Prayers for life. Literally, he prays for life. He says, give me life. And five times before we've come to this passage in Psalm 119, he's prayed like that, that the Lord would give him life. But this is the passage where that prayer is really emphasized four times. One in the first stanza, verse 149. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. And then three times in the second stanza. 154, he says, give me life according to your promise. 156, he says, give me life according to your rules. And 159, he says, give me life according to your steadfast love. What does he mean when he prays, give me life? What kind of life does he have in mind? Well, the preservation of his physical life is an undeniable component here to this prayer, especially as he prays it with the enemies breathing down his neck. He is indeed praying that God would simply protect him, prolong his life, keep him alive, especially from the enemies who are also enemies of God. But if that's all that the psalmist had in mind, physical protection, then here again we can say he spoke better than he knew. For even Job, which is almost certainly written before whenever Psalm 119 was written, even Job knew about life beyond this life. He knew about life after death. Remember this in Job 19 when Job said, For I know that my Redeemer lives And at the last, on the last day, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold him and not another. Wow. Job had been given so much. He he understood so much. And we can too. We can know more than this. From this side of the New Testament scriptures, 
we know that Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's why Jesus spoke so often of eternal life. In fact, it's not just Jesus, but also in the epistles, the letters of the New Testament. In total, there are 43 times the New Testament speaks of eternal life. It's, it's a way of describing salvation, redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the restoration of sinners to their God. All these come to us in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through him or by him. In 1 John 5, we read that God gave us, as Christians, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And in Romans 6, we read that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now this is what you need to know in order to be saved, in order to have eternal life, in order to die and not eternally die, which is really just a nice way of talking about hell or eternity under God's judgment. We all deserve that. The wages of sin is death. But God sent his son, God himself, to become man, to live perfectly and to die sacrificially. And he was raised victoriously so that you would know that what he offers is legitimate. He offers mercy, eternal life, the cancellation of your debt, restoration to God whom you've rebelled against, as all of us have. He offers that freely if we simply believe that it's so and call out to him for it. So like this psalmist, and with more information than he had, you can pray today, Oh Lord, give me life. Give me life. Give me eternal life. Give it according to your promise, as he said. Give it according to your steadfast love, as he said. Do it according to your justice, you who say you are the just God and the justifying God in Jesus. Christian, pray and keep praying. Lord, give me life. And by that, please don't mean, Lord, give me the good life. You know, upper middle income, a sweet, safe retirement package. Lord, give me life. You know, life that counts as my neighbors think it counts. Now, don't pray that. Pray, Lord, give me life. Life abundant, yes. Jesus offers abundant life. That abundant life will not necessarily be easy. That probably will involve, will probably involve tears 
and sleeplessness. In this world, you will have trouble. But there's abundant life even in the trouble. And we need life that's beyond the trouble. Pray for the kind of life that death can't touch. Isn't that great to know that we have a kind of life ahead of us that death can't touch? For the Christian, death is no longer the payment or wages for sin. It is the pathway to more of God, to more of his redemption, more of his presence. So Paul can say in Romans 8, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death does not separate us from his love. It actually brings us to this loving God. Remember Hebrews 2, that Jesus took on flesh as he did, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. That's what he did on that cross. And through that death on the cross, by destroying the one who has the power over death, he can now deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How do we know this? Well, fourthly, a true and enduring word. The last theme I want to point out to you is one that really is the theme for all of Psalm 119, but here it gets a prominent place. Notice the ending to each of our two stanzas. They both have to do with the true and enduring word of God. So once again, by the way, we see that Psalm 119 comes to us apparently in pairs of stanzas with shared language and stylistic cues to show us that they go together like they do. So notice at the end of the first one, in verse 151 and 152, he says, all your commandments are true Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. And at the end of the second one in verse 160, true and forever pop up again. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Notice from these verses that the Bible is true in all its parts and as a whole. All your commandments, every one of your righteous rules. Those are the parts. And then notice, the sum of your word is truth. As we said last week, it's worth reviewing again. How do we know that the Bible is true and is the word of God? And I said last week, there is a time to talk about the historicity of this all. 
or to talk about the eyewitness authors, or to talk about manuscript evidence. But there is a time to simply believe what the Bible says about itself because it's the Bible. The Bible is true because the Bible says that it's true. The Bible cannot appeal to some higher authority for its validation because there is no higher authority. Martin Luther had a, had a, a great Latin slogan for this. Norma normans, non normanta. Norma normans, non normanta. That's not a song about a guy named Norm. It means scripture is the norm which cannot be normed. It's the norm which norms. Scripture is the norm which norms and cannot be normed. Or we could say it's the standard which standardizes and can't be standardized by anything else. And one of the things that Scripture says about itself is that it's really old. It's really old. It's eternal. And therefore, it'll last forever. Notice Verse 152, God has founded them forever ago. And the psalmist can say, I have known that for a really long time. Our culture tends to look down upon that which is old. We say, that was so 1990s. That was so 2000s. Or some kids in here will say, that was so 2017, Dad. Right? Most Americans roll their eyes today at that idea that only 10 years ago, almost all of us in this country believed that marriage is defined as a husband and a wife. The Bible insists that it's true because it's old. Not that it wasn't written in time and space and in different times and spaces, but no, it comes from an eternal God, and so it's been forever settled. I've heard Tim Keller, the former pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City, either heard this or read this. I, I couldn't hunt it down this week to find exactly where I've heard it, but he made the claim once that the Bible's authority and its ancientness or timelessness can actually be, he said, culturally liberating. Now, let me see if I can take a minute or two to recreate his argument because I found it helpful. And particularly helpful for anyone here who, you know, a little bit ago I, I said, ask God to grant you life, that you might be saved, that you might be forgiven, that you might be right with God. And you might have said, Nope, I am so far from that. I'm not remotely there yet. Let's start with the Bible, you might say. It's got all these errors. It's really old. It's archaic. It's a joke. Well, this might help you. So Tim Keller says that all of us must admit that there are some things that were believed by people three to four generations ago that today we pretty much all think are silly and a little embarrassing. Take 
cigarette ads from the 1950s or the way people talked or, or thought about what women can do or not do as opposed to today. Or you could just go back to the perspectives on race in the era of Jim Crow laws in the South. So there's some things that people believed three to four generations ago that we all know are silly now. Then he says, who's to say that some things that you believe right now won't in three to four generations from now be thought of as silly and embarrassing? Won't our great, great, great grandkids one day look back at some things that we wrote or said or believed and roll their eyes, even rightfully so? Or are we really the generation that finally gets it right? I mean, after all this truth searching out, generation after generation now, has that great search for truth finally stopped with us? Well, of course not. Hopefully no one in this room would be so naive. So Keller says, how can we know where we're off? How can we get real perspective? How can we get outside of our cultural moment? Well, what if we had an ancient text with some proven worth, attested to by millions of people from almost all cultures and places and times, a text self-attested to us by God himself? And what if we adopted that text as the authoritative vantage point by which we could critique all other cultures? What if it doesn't work like this, culture over Bible, but Bible over cultures? Wouldn't it be freeing to not have to put our finger up in the wind of the culture every 10 minutes to find out what we're supposed to believe? Wouldn't it be freeing to not have to wonder what you believe now that is going to be irrelevant and silly and outdated four generations from now? And wouldn't it be a shame to reject the Bible now using criteria that three to four generations from now shake their head about that well in the bible we find god it's in the bible that we see salvation it's in the bible for the christian that we get comfort it's in the bible that we we get help it's in the bible that we learn how to cry out to the god of help for his help so christian don't give up on the Bible. Don't get tired of the Bible. Don't be frustrated with the Bible. Go to the Bible. Live by the Bible. Keep singing like Martin Luther taught us to sing about the Bible. He said, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, it abideth. No thanks to them, devils. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. 
So let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We once again ask for your forgiveness for neglecting so great a word. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for so frequently turning to other comforts that really are no comforts at all. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for the times where we presume that we deserve something other than what you give us. Help us instead to know that you've given us so much mercy. We thank you for what you've given us. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you that you are near. We thank you that you're near to us in Jesus. We remind ourselves this morning that Jesus told us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He told us, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Lord, we need Jesus. I pray this morning that everyone in this room would know and feel their need for you, but would also find that you are a mighty, saving, and helping God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.